0: Welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here, the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. As we enter the holiday season, and whenever I say that, I want to be clear, I'm not trying to be woke, politically correct, and bland. I just mean holiday season to encapsulate the Christmas and the uh, Hanukkah and the boxing day and new year's day and uh day after boxing day i believe that's a stat in saskatchewan if memory serves but anyway no i just mean it to, to be broad i'm not trying to, i'm christmas 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 don't worry i'm not going totally woke here but uh we try in the holiday season i do anyway to be a bit introspective to take a look at some of the big picture questions and issues that have arisen during the year and perhaps set 2024 off on the right foot and it is uh, my pleasure to do this as we do. It's kind of become a, a bit of an annual tradition. You've got advent calendars and John Carpe. You can decide which one is sweeter, but we do a, a bit of a year in review check-in on civil liberties which uh, you may know the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms has always been on the front lines of. Now, just by way of disclosure, I sit on the board of the JCCF, but I have been doing this feature with John uh since before I was on the board and will continue to do so after, so there is no unch- toward a transactional thing happening, I assure you. Uh, John Carpe, president and founder of the JCCF joins me. John, always good to talk to you. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for being here.
1: Merry Christmas, Andrew. Glad to be with you.
0: So when we did this a year ago, it was the end of 2022, which was obviously a very tumultuous year on the civil liberties front. Well, I think maybe it ended a little bit better with the eradication of a lot of COVID mandates. It was a year in which we had seen the continuation of many mandates far past when, if there ever had been a scientific justification, there was one. We saw the crackdown on the truckers, then the freedom convoy protests, which again had unprecedented government power. 2023 has been a bit less eventful, but it's amazing how much we're still seeing some of the aftershock of COVID, certainly as these things work their way through the legal system. I mean, this is actually, for the JCCF, become still a a very long-running battle.
1: We've had uh, negative Things happen in 2022. We've had some atrocious court rulings where the judges very clearly are not looking at the evidence in front of them, and they are parroting what they heard on the CBC or whatever other news that that, that they are looking at. Uh, so that's a new reality that we are wrapping our heads around. It does not mean that the litigation is a waste of time because as we saw, for example, in Brian Peckford's action, even though that was very tragically, uh, dismissed
0: and and just interject, this is the the challenge on air travel vaccine mandates. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Brian Peckford's court action against the, uh, you know, the the federal government rule that, that unless you've been injected with COVID vaccine, you couldn't travel on an airplane, even though that action was unjustifiably dismissed uh, and that was a terrible ruling, we uh, secured admissions from federal government officials under oath that there was no medical or scientific basis for imposing these restrictions. So even though the court action was dismissed, we have this on, as a matter of public record, uh, federal government officials admitting there was no science behind the government's policy. And this is still a kind of an informal precedent, uh, but it, it has been truly discouraging to see, for example, uh, in earlier, earlier this month, earlier in December, uh, we got a, a ruling from um, an Ontario court against Randy Hillier completely deliberately ignoring all of the lockdown harms which were placed before the court in evidence to say, hey, uh, these lockdowns caused a lot of harm to a lot of people. Here is the academic research. Here is the study that that reviews all of these other reports. And it gets completely ignored in a court judgment. Things like that are discouraging. Uh, But again, you've gotta just press ahead and fight the battles that need to be fought.
0: In an ideal world, judges are interpreting the law and operating within the confines of the law. They're not moonlighting. They're not uh, really making decisions based on their whims. Now, I say in an ideal world, because we know that this is not how judges are. There was a, a famous quote from Beverly McLaughlin, the former Chief Justice of Canada in her memoir, where she characterized her job as a Supreme Court justice. And I'm paraphrasing, but she said, I have to hear the cases, then go back and decide what's best for society. And that is not actually the role of a judge to decide what's best for society. That is the role of motivational speakers. That maybe is the role of a politician, but it's not the role in theory of a judge. So I'll ask you in in that vein, is the issue here with the law or is the issue with how judges are operating or is it both?
1: Well, we, we've had... Uh... Another example, and I could give you a half dozen examples, but I'll I'll focus in on uh, a decision in Alberta, um, Alberta Court of King's bench ruling in Ingram versus Alberta. And that was Justice Barbara Romain. And she quoted other judges in saying, quote, uh, I I am not an armchair epidemiologist and I am neither inclined uh, nor capable of sorting through uh, the conflicting expert reports, and uh, I can't second. I'm just not qualified to look at the science. Uh, you know, however, I'm just going to rule in favor of the government because the government appears to be presenting some science. It's like. I I can't believe I'm reading that because- That
0: goes back to like the Milgram experiment. And if they're wearing a white lab coat, we just assume, well, they must know what's going on.
1: But the same judge rules, uh, presumably, and I I haven't looked at her her other rulings, but but the judges, they, they have to rule on like a medical malpractice lawsuit. They're not doctors. They're not scientists. And yet they have to rule that, you know, yes, the doctor was liable in the way that he performed the surgery or no, the doctor was not liable in the way that he performed the surgery. Or there could be a complicated uh, construction lawsuit. There's a, a building collapses and the. The owners are suing the construction people, who are suing the the engineers, who are suing the architects, and it comes before a judge who is not an engineer, might not have a science degree, and yet the judge is called upon and does rule that you know so and so, you know the engineers are liable, not liable, the architects are liable, not liable, the construction company is liable, not liable. You don't have this whiny, pathetic. Oh, I, I'm not a scientist. I just can't. I'm just not qualified to rule on this. So they are called upon. On every day to make complicated rulings uh, in in fields where they don't have formal training and yet here when it's the government violating our rights and freedoms you have these these uh, you have this pathetic whining and a total abdication of responsibility from some judges who say I'm just not qualified to decide on all this science stuff mm-hmm. so therefore I'll just rule in favor of the government which which is contradictory too because they are making a ruling that that somehow they do feel qualified to assess and determine that the government is presenting enough science mm-hmm. to qualify. So that's been horrific. And this is a a brand new problem that I have not seen. I've disagreed with many rulings over the past 40 years, uh, but never before have I seen judges that completely abdicate their responsibility to look at the evidence in front of them rather than not looking at the evidence and just running with what they heard on the six o'clock news.
0: Well, and you say evidence in front of them. There have been a, a number of cases, and I, I think the JCCF has been involved in many of them, where uh, judges have not even allowed evidence to be brought forward. Where they, And, and I don't mean the, the standard practice of you know evidentiary review where they say this is in, this is out, but they've just said, we're, we're not here to debate the science, so I don't want scientific evidence. Well, if science was the basis that the government was using for all of these things, you would like to believe that science is going to be a part of them having to demonstrate the legitimacy of these things. but. Some judges won't even look at that.
1: Well, in British Columbia, we have courts that are act- appear to be actively shielding the chief medical officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, from any kind of cross-examination. They do not want this woman to be put on the stand, uh, so to speak, and questioned under oath. Hmm. And so they say, well, uh, you know, bon- Bonnie Henry said that that uh, whatever, and, and they're not going to take a hard look at the evidence. I have not seen this before. In uh, again, the Charter has been with us now for 41 years, and I, I have not seen courts that have been so uh, d- deliberately. You can read this for yourself in the judgment. It's not a. It's not a theory. You, you can read it yourself in the judgment where the judge says they're not going to look at this evidence, um, and, and and then they just rule in favor of the government, and that's completely contrary to what the Charter requires of those judges.
0: Now, to go back to an age-old discussion in charter literature and and charter scholarship, there's this idea of uh, deference and, and whether the charter is in some ways undemocratic because the charter allows courts to override what elected representatives do. And it's interesting how courts have picked and chosen along the way when to be deferential to the government and when to not be. On COVID issues, whatever governments do, are uh, basically gospel. But when it comes to uh, things that are of a different nature, the courts will say, oh, no, 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 the court should decide this, not governments. The court should decide assisted dying, not government. The court should decide uh, where you get to have a law school and what rules you get to have, not uh, these other bodies. And, and that to me has been the most glaring issue here that there's really been no accountability on is that when they decide in judicial supremacy and when they decide in legislative, legislative supremacy.
1: Well, we saw an example of that in Saskatchewan, where the Saskatchewan government uh, came up with a new policy that said that uh, when children under the age of sixteen want to transition to the uh, to the opposite sex, and that that's called social transitioning, children under sixteen, if they want to start using, um, if if a boy wants to start using female pronouns, uh, she, her. Uh, or a girl's name or dressing like a girl, or vice versa, if a boy wants to uh, dress like a girl and have a girl's name, uh, if they're under 16, we need parental consent. So it's a policy that requires parental involvement uh, to protect children from activists that are going to uh, be influencing kids without the parents even knowing what's going on. Now, the, uh, there's LGBTQ group that took this to court, and, and argued incorrectly, in my view, that, that children have some sort of a charter right to keep their parents in the dark about what's going on with uh, with the lives of, of children, which I don't think there's any basis for that. Uh, they secured an interim injunction against the government's policy, after which the government, uh, I think, quite sensibly and justifiably uh, made use of the notwithstanding clause and said, notwithstanding court's interpretation of charter rights and freedoms, we're gonna keep this policy in place. But here, here's what's interesting there. The, the court was not deferential to the government, right? The government, the, the court on, on an interim basis struck down this parental consent policy. Uh, I, I would venture a guess, and it's purely hypothetical, if, if some COVID rule had been placed in front of the same judge, uh, if he was gonna rule like a lot of the other judges, he would have said, oh, I've, I'm not qualified to assess the science, so therefore, I'm just gonna rule in favor of the government. So it's a different standard depending on uh, what you're bringing forward.
0: Yeah. And and what was interesting, too, is that, you know, the the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as you and I have discussed and as I mentioned at other times, has these little escape hatches, if you will. One of them is Section one, which says all of these uh, subsequent freedoms are yeah, they're not really all that absolute and they have these things. And the other is Section 33, the Notwithstanding Clause. And the way that those two sections are viewed so differently by people is, is fascinating. When uh, as a government defends an encroachment on civil liberties under Section 1, like in COVID issues, uh, they're uh, upheld and everyone says, well, no, no right is absolute. No right is, is completely unlimited. But when Saskatchewan uses its constitutional authority under the notwithstanding clause to defend legislation, it's, oh, well, this is egregious. It's a violation of everyone's rights. And uh, again, it, people are, are deciding their adherence to the process based on whether or not they like the outcome.
1: And I, I think I think that's human nature. I mean, people, you know, when people are happy with a particular court ruling, they're going to sing the praises of judges as being uh, neutral and objective and above the fray and thoughtful, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when people get a court ruling they don't like, uh, they're going to say things about judges that are less flattering. But what it boils down to is is the charter gives uh, gives judges the power under Section One to trample on. Charter rights and freedoms, and the Charter gives uh, uh, under Section 33 gives politicians the right to trample on uh, charter rights and freedoms as interpreted by a court. So, you know, I, I've often said, and I'll, I'll say it again right now: the the true guarantor uh, of a, a free society is where Canadians uh, understand with their minds and cherish in their hearts what our rights and freedoms are, where Canadians actually believe that our free and democratic society is superior to a repressive regime, be it communist, fascist, Nazi, theocratic, uh, whatever kind of, there's different kinds of repressive regimes. But if, if we actually believe that our free society is superior to a repressive regime, it's in the hearts and minds of the people. That that's where the safeguard is for our rights and freedoms. Because if if you if you ask me, you know, well, well, John, choose between judges or politicians. Which group, as a group, is more trustworthy? I don't I don't trust judges or politicians to a great extent. Uh, But if we have uh, uh, if Canadians really understand and cherish our Charter rights and freedoms, that is the guarantor, not judges, not politicians.
0: Yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree with you there, and and again, I, I also realize that if you take a maximalist view of civil liberties, as probably more aligned with the, the American approach, you're basically saying that courts should have the final say on on things, and that government power should be very much checked by the judiciary. But it's not exactly the case where I would want to give that power to the Canadian judiciary, which is where we go back to the caliber of judges that we have, and and. You know, in the United States, judicial appointments at the Supreme Court are a very heavily politicized process, and I'd say probably overly so, but it means that you kind of know when a judge is appointed what outlook they're going to have in Canada. If anyone thinks that this can be saved by there being a conservative government, you've not been paying attention because there have been some egregious uh, Supreme Court decisions that I would say are egregious because they're anti-freedom that were at at one point decided by a a court in which six of the nine judges were appointed by Stephen Harper. So uh, maybe it's just that Stephen Harper made bad appointments or is it that there aren't any really liberty minded judges in our system?
1: I think there are liberty-minded people, and I think Stephen Harper, as a as a very very intelligent guy, he should have known better uh, than to appoint judges that are often not sympathetic to our fundamental freedoms of uh, religion, conscience, expression, association, peaceful assembly, and so on. And uh, Stephen Harper appointed a few good judges, but he appointed uh, an awful lot of judges to to courts that uh, that are not sympathetic to uh charter rights and freedoms that are very statist or very they have a very pro-government bias and so um you know i, I don't i don't think stephen harper's appointments uh, on the whole were were much better or much worse than uh than what we've seen since uh, since prime minister trudeau uh took office in in 2015.
0: So let's go back to some of the specific cases that you've had uh, in the past year, because uh, you have had some wins and and I I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about some of those that you might be particularly proud of from the last year.
1: Well, we've had in the past two months, we've had four uh, trials in Ottawa of Canadians who did nothing other than peacefully exercise their Charter Freedoms of of, uh, Expression Association Peaceful Assembly during the truckers' convoy. And I, I think everybody recognizes, even even people that that totally disagreed with the protest. I, I think there's a universal recognition that there was no arson, uh, there's no store windows smashed, there was no vandalism, there's no looting, uh, there's no violence, there was no murder, there was no shooting. It, it was a peaceful protest, and yet we see an abuse of the uh, crown prosecutor's authority by uh, criminalizing. A peaceful protest. So the Justice Center has provided lawyers to four different, um, well, more than four, to, to well over a dozen people. We've gone to trial and we've secured acquittals. Uh, we are currently making it possible for uh, Chris Barber uh, to, um, that was being tried along with, with Tamara Leach. Uh, so we we are fighting there, and, and donors are providing the money that we're providing the lawyers. Um, so that that uh, they can stand up to this prosecution. So I think that's been uh, very positive. We obviously we don't have a verdict in that yet. Um, let me
0: let me just jump in there for a moment, John, because When you envisioned the JCCF, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, however many years ago it was, did you imagine that you would ever end up in criminal cases? Because in the early interviews that you and I did, I never I mean, I don't even think you would ever had a criminal lawyer that you had to have because that was just not where things were. So explain that for a moment.
1: Well, our focus has been and still is on the Charter Section 2 fundamental freedoms, Mm -hmm. uh, conscience, religion, expression, association, peaceful assembly. And no, we had, it's interesting. We had some lawyers come on board in, uh, in 2019, early 2020, that had a criminal law background. And my thinking was, well, that's nice, but you know, not really relevant to what you're going to do here, but you know, that's nice. And then it turned out that we actually needed, uh, the, these lawyers with criminal law background, because we, you know, generally speaking, we don't do criminal law, but here was a situation with with uh, Tamara Leach, Chris Barber, and so many other Canadians getting facing uh, mm-hmm. unjust criminal charges when all they did was participate in a peaceful protest. And you know, granted, the 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 some of these trucks may have been illegally parked, uh, but that's not a crime. That's that's a parking infraction. That's a municipal offense. So um, yeah, it's been great that we do have uh, a, a good, uh, roughly a third of our team are lawyers that do have criminal law background that have been taking this on. Plus, of course, we've also retained outside counsel for, for some of these cases. But I never thought I would see the day. And it's tragic that mm-hmm. we would see, uh, again, in, in my opinion, an abuse of prosecutorial authority, certainly a misallocation of resources. When you consider that in Ontario alone since 2016, there have been 86 sexual assault Uh, charges where the victim has not seen her day in court uh, because the Crown has failed to uh, uh, bring the prosecution forward in a timely fashion. So you you see the Crown in Ontario, uh, you see people accused of rape, uh, and they're accused, but I uh, would venture to guess some of them are guilty, and they're walking away scot-free and yet the crown is devoting resources to prosecuting Tamara Leach and Chris
0: Barber and and you know i'm often sympathetic to the argument that the process is the punishment and, and that's especially true if you're involved in a criminal case i mean in the in the case of tamara leach who i know that the justice center is not representing she has been rearrested and has spent more time in jail than people who are on trial for incredibly serious offenses do but to talk about the situation in which she and, and chris barber find themselves they went to trial on September 5th, I think it was, September 4th or September 5th, it was supposed to be 16 days of hearings. We are now in uh, the end, coming to the end of December, and the trial has no end in sight. Uh, it is set to continue in January. Uh, there is continual evidence after evidence after evidence that's been added here. I, I mean, it's possible they're still going to be in court when it, when they'll have reached the two-year mark from when they were first arrested. And this has hung over their heads for that entire two years. It's been over
1: 30 days of trial. When I last spoke with uh, uh, Chris Barber's lawyer, uh, she told me that this is, by, by the time various motions are filed and and heard and ruled upon, uh, motions by the Crown, motions by the defense and possibly more evidence put forward and the defense is going to put its case forward. Uh, we're looking at April, May, June of 2024 Uh, before this is fully concluded and then thereafter it could be two, four, six months before a judgment. So, yeah, and it's incredibly stressful to have this hanging over your head because if you are convicted, even if it looks like, you know, you you probably won't be right, but you don't know for sure. And if you have a criminal conviction, it's a nasty thing to have. It'll, uh, you know, possibly prevent you from traveling to the United States. you know, it's just not a it, it, it's been really hard on uh, on Tamara Leach and Chris Barber and, and other people.
0: Yeah. And, and also it, it speaks to priorities. I, I mean, to go back to the Brian Peckford case and uh, True North's case against the Leaders Debates Commission, which uh, JCCF w- was representing us on, you know, courts have found that things are moot. They say, well, it's not a live issue anymore. There's no point in doing this. And really the core of that mootness doctrine is that there are such scarce judicial resources that courts have to be, pardon the pun, so judicious with what they allow to have a hearing. And then you take that and you look in the context of Tamara Leach and Chris Barber and find that, you know, even though it's 30 days of trial so far, it's actually in in calendar time, months and months and months that this has been on a judge's docket, that this has been taking up courtroom time, and to what end? To what end? We,
1: uh, we secured the, uh, the withdrawal of charges as well for quite a few people. Uh, William Vogelsang uh, became famous three years ago. He was only 17 at the time. He got an $880 ticket for playing basketball outside alone. And this was under uh, the Ontario lockdown measures. And so, uh, Justice Center provided lawyers who've negotiated the removal of that ticket. We've had a lot of cases where the either we, we've secured an acquittal after trial, or we have negotiated uh, just a complete withdrawal or stay of the charges. Or in some cases, with a client's consent, uh, we've we've. Uh, struck a, struck a deal where they, they, they make a $50 donation to a charity. And you know, the, the ticket, which is for a much larger amount is, uh, is withdrawn. So we, we've had that pushback and that, that success. And I think a lot of what we do, you know, we hold the government's feet to the fire. The government knows that, you know, when they get sued, they have to put their evidence, however, pathetic and paltry and unpersuasive it might be. They have to publicly put their evidence forward. And so there's that deterrent effect. Uh, When when we sued the government, we were the first organization to to, to sue over the uh, mandatory use of Arrive Can. And within three weeks of us filing that court action, the government withdrew the policy. So we have those um, uh, deterrent effects uh, as well.
0: Yeah, and I I will say, I mean, obviously, it's impossible to talk about civil liberties in the last three years without uh, looming, uh, letting COVID loom large. But governments are doing a whole bunch of non COVID things as well. I mean, uh, local level is is always interesting on this because I think municipalities and school boards tend to think that they can fly under the radar. And there was a a case that uh, the JCCF was involved in with uh, a woman, and we've written about this case at True North, Linda DiArmani. Uh, She was it's quite chilling. If you watch the video, she was at a school board meeting. She was speaking very critically, but very calmly and and professionally about uh, some of these issues connected to to gender. And the trustees are shutting her microphone off. They're, They're literally in that moment. It's hard to come up with a more literal manifestation of you being censored than a school board shutting your mic off. And, and in this case, you have them really taking their wokest ideology and believing that that trumps a citizen's right to speak freely at a public meeting without being disruptive.
1: Yeah, we've sued uh, school boards. Uh, the most recent court action filed is, is Linda Diarmani in Chilliwack, British Columbia. And the uh, very, very woke uh, school board chairman, uh, Willow uh, Reicheld, uh, feels entitled to shut off microphones uh, the moment somebody starts to say something that uh, she disagrees with. And so we have uh, we, we filed a court action there to um, to bring that school board into line. And um, the, the other thing that it's not a, re- a court action and I hope it won't be, but we're raising public awareness about the potential danger, very real potential, but also uh, very serious threat to our Privacy into our freedom through centralized digital ID and and even uh, central bank digital currency. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things are looming on the horizon. Uh, the government has the power to uh, turn us into a complete slave state where the government knows where you go, where you are, who you hang out with, what you do, what you buy, and you know we got a small taste of that with the vaccine passport system in 2021, where the became, you know, you had to show your your uh, re- release, private, confidential medical information. Uh, everybody had to do that. And and if you didn't have the right medical information, you were a second class citizen. Now, the government has the power to do that on a large scale and start to punish people for their uh, political views or their spending decisions. Um, So we are uh, we're releasing studies and reports and we have an information brochure to be proactive on this and really get ahead of the curve and educate Canadians about the dangers of uh, central digital ID. Yeah,
0: and I think that's where uh, to go back to things I know it can be very dejecting to see legal losses, and I I know you and I have talked about a number of these things, but I think you're right to point out that wins can look very different. Uh, Public education is a huge victory point. And also that idea of disclosure and discovery. I mean, even the Public Order Emergency Commission, while I wasn't happy with uh, the finding on it, I am very pleased that it was a process that gave us more information and documents than we had and have since seen about how the government engaged on the use of the Emergencies Act.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, The price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And I, I fear I fear that things could actually get worse in the next few years before they get better. But I just think it's really important to keep on fighting, uh, fight the fights that that need to uh, get fought, get in the trenches, get your hands dirty and uh, you know, challenge the attacks against our fundamental freedoms. And I think it does. It does pay off in the long run because ultimately uh, truth will vanquish the lie. And I think that that freedom ultimately will triumph over tyranny and justice over injustice. But it's it's our responsibility in the end term to uh, to keep on speaking truth to power, and just to keep on uh, doing what's right.
0: And I think you've said in the past that you'd love nothing more than to be able to just like close up shop and go home, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> I would like the justice center to be out of business, but uh, I don't see that
0: happening in the next few years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, yeah, the New Year's resolution could be shutting you down, but only when it's earned and when it's warranted. So if governments want to just go around and stop violating civil liberties uh, any day now, that would be great. Well, I always, I mean, it's it's tough because in some ways it, it's so pessimistic to have these conversations, but uh, knowing people like you are in the trenches and Your your great team has been uh, always a a glimmer of optimism in the midst of this. John Carpe, president of the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. All the best to you and yours this holiday season, and thanks for coming on. Thank you, Andrew, and uh, all the best for 2024. All right. That was John Carpe on The Andrew Lawton Show. My thanks to all of you for tuning in. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show.